Hello, ¿qué tal? Aquí es los Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroy Hawkins. Coming up first. I guess just a few days ago, it could have been that we'll walk away uh, and break up the entire uh, Pacific family. Pacific Islands Forum Rift mended in Suva. Pacific states don't want to have to choose between economic development partners. International security expert says the West's zero-sum game isn't an effective strategy for Pacific diplomacy. Basically, it's almost like an abandonment from Australia about the refugees that are stuck there. And the new Australian government is being urged to deal with its refugees in Indonesia. In a watershed moment, leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum have agreed on a way to prevent Micronesian countries from breaking up their premier regional body. The row came to a head in February last year over the selection of a candidate for the forum's top job. Micronesia was annoyed its candidate, Gerald Zakios, was overlooked in favour of the former Cook Islands Prime Minister, Henry Puna. A high-level meeting was held in Fiji on Tuesday. Irons at Pacific's Fiji correspondent Lee Mavono was there and covered the meeting. To outsiders looking in, the forum row over an executive position might have looked a bit silly, but it's about more than just a job title. The president of Palau, Suranjal Whips Jr., said it was a feeling on the Micronesians' part of being excluded from the forum's day-to-day business and by extension the region as a whole. You know, Micronesia said the SG is supposed to be Micronesian, but what's more important is let's look long-term. And it is that long-term vision that's driven a solution. Yesterday's meeting was hosted by the current forum chair, Fiji's Prime Minister Frank Mainamarama, and attended by the leaders of Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, Samoa, and the Cook Islands. The Micronesians came in wanting Henry Puna out and have now agreed to the top job being rotated through the region. And by the forum agreeing that now we're going to put it in writing, it's going to be rotational, we're going to be more inclusive at the at office, have deputies that represent the region and, and sub-regional offices and the other, um, the Oceans Commissioner, all of those add to being inclusive. Samoa's Prime Minister, Fia May Naomi Mata'afa, is new at the helm and was not part of the events that led up to the rift, but she's pleased to be part of the solution. We need to go through the process of all the members uh, signing up, but those of us who are here, six of us, um, I think are representative of the, the three sub-regions and uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to implement what's been proposed and agreed to. This is a crucial detail. The clock is still ticking towards when the formal withdrawal processes initiated by the five disgruntled Micronesian states last year become official. NRNZ Pacific understands the first of these is triggered at the end of the month. But the agreement hammered out yesterday is a breakthrough and one the president of the Federated States of Micronesia, David Panuelo, is grateful for. Because just a few days ago, it could have been that we'll walk away uh, uh, and break up the entire uh, Pacific family, but uh, common ground that we've reached uh, has kept us together. It now remains to be seen whether the rest of the forum leaders on both sides of the rift sign off on the terms and conditions threshed out in Suva this week. An international security expert says the zero-sum game adopted by some Western countries in their Pacific diplomacy may not be the most effective approach. In the past few months, the Pacific has had a flurry of high-level visits from the United States, New Zealand and most recently China and Australia. 
Joining me to examine some of the approaches being taken is Mass University Senior Lecturer in Security Studies, Dr. Anna Pauls. Istanbul bin and welcome back on Pacific Waves, Anna. Let's start with the recent visits by China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi. What are your initial thoughts on his tour? So initial reactions. Uh, firstly, Wang Yi's tour was a, was a whirlwind of, of bilateral agreements. Uh, he signed a series of, of, of agreements across the region with, with uh, the Pacific states uh, that recognized China, uh, from, from 10 agreements in Kiribati to three in Samoa. And then, of course, uh, the proposed and, and pre-drafted uh, common development vision communique, which China had hoped would be adopted by the 10 Pacific states at the meeting between foreign ministers that was held in Suva last week. And as we know, it wasn't adopted. Uh, so this Minister Wang's visit really demonstrated both the depth of relationships that, that, that China has bilaterally, but also the overreach and overconfidence in with respect to its efforts to engage uh, at the multilateral level. But also a really important point here too for me was this demonstrated the astuteness of Pacific statecraft, the, the way in which Pacific states are leveraging geopolitical interests in the region. Just going on that, that wider multilateral sort of communique that Beijing wasn't able to get through, in your view, was that in your understanding, was that something that was that uh, uh, that Pacific states were privy to in the lead up to this meeting? And if so, were Australia and New Zealand also privy to to that communique coming up? Well, the media reported, and I believe it was Reuters who reported it initially. Uh, and our understanding from media reporting was that the the drafted communique had been circulated amongst the ten Pacific states with whom China were seeking to to adopt it. Uh, however, the Federated States of Micronesia, the president, uh, its, its president, David Panuelo, wrote a letter to Pacific leaders, including uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Australia's then Prime Minister Scott Morrison, raising his concerns and circulating the communique uh, more broadly. And that's how it came into the public domain. Now, the visit um, has come quite close to the change of government in Australia. What are your, your thoughts on the new government's approach and, and in particular the Foreign Minister Penny Wong's front-footing sort of visits to the Pacific? Senator Wong uh, got, she, she flew to Suva very quickly. She gave a an excellent address that hit all the right notes uh, in Suva with respect to climate change, with respect to really resetting Australia's relationships with the Pacific um, and with its Pacific partners and neighbours. And, and that has been very strongly welcomed. Uh, and of course, she has also visited uh, Samoa uh, and, and Tonga uh, very quickly. Uh, and certainly, again, the, the language, um, the rhetoric and, uh, around climate change is, is very welcomed. And of course, you know, now everyone will be, will be wanting to see action uh, as well. Uh, but it's the new government certainly has gotten off to a good start and leading with the, the centering of, of an Indigenous foreign policy uh, for Australia has been a big part of that as well. And that's something, of course, that we are, we are familiar with in, in New Zealand too. Yeah, uh, speaking of that, in contrasting Australia's approach to New Zealand, um, Nanaya Mahuta has said um, that 
New Zealand's relationship with the Pacific has deeper roots. He's not concerned with the sort of the intensity which China is is bringing into the region, saying those those relationships are long established by New Zealand. And, and also saying, I think the language was, she would be visiting the Pacific at a more respectful pace, I think, was the sort of... Um, wording of of her approach to visits to the pacific which are upcoming what what's your view uh contrasting those approaches well i think it certainly uh perhaps reflects a more cautious approach by new zealand uh but i also think we need to be mindful of the fact that relationships irrespective of whether there is another actor uh another state uh, at play in this instance obviously china uh all relate we, we cannot be complacent about our relationships in the pacific and with the pacific and we new zealand has been complacent in the past uh, which of course you know, sort of reinvigorated and led to the Pacific reset in 2018 uh, under the previous Labour government. Uh, we cannot afford to be complacent now. That doesn't mean that, that Foreign Minister Mahuta should be uh, dashing uh, around the, the capitals of, of the Pacific, but rather we certainly need to have, we need to make sure that the rhetoric matches uh, the depth of relationships that we have. For um, uh, just looking, ending on probably a more a sort of a step back and looking at the approaches here to the Pacific diplomacy from the from the West, we're almost seeing a us and them kind of an approach, and from China, it's kind of here's what we have to offer. Do you think that the the difference in the two approaches is hurting the West in terms of sort of China pull on loyalties and allegiances, whereas China doesn't seem to be on the surface at least sort of saying that it has to be us or them? I think we can actually hear it's important to to listen to what Pacific leaders have been saying for years, uh, which alongside uh, the um, the fact that climate change is, is the number one security issue in the Pacific, uh, but also that Pacific states don't want to be, uh, don't want to have to choose uh, between economic development partners uh, they don't want to be drawn into a geopolitical chess game in the Pacific. And, but importantly, they want to also be part of these conversations. And New Zealand, Australia and other uh, Western uh, partners need to be very cognizant of, of what Pacific leaders and Pacific states have been saying over the years uh, about the way in which they are prioritizing their security needs. And we need to be very careful about the way that we frame our, the concerns, um, for instance, with respect to, to China, and mindful of the fact that there are a range of views within the Pacific as well when it comes to, to China. And I certainly think that, that the Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi's visit has highlighted the, the range of concerns about uh, about China, frustration around the way in which China has, you know, sought to pursue some of these agreements, and uh, but also a desire to engage and cooperate with China as well on the part of of, of many Pacific countries. Uh, so a zero sum approach to this is simply not going to be effective. As the new Australian government moves to improve relations with Indonesia. The refugee advocacy group People Just Like Us is urging it to fix the messy and destructive refugee setup it has with Jakarta. 
It wants to see the establishment of a safe passage for the nearly 14,000 refugees trapped in Indonesia, largely due to Australian policies applied the past generation. Australia accepts just a few dozen refugees each year from Indonesia, and people just like us say this has to increase dramatically. A spokesperson for the advocacy group, Alfred Peck, spoke with Don Wiseman and began by detailing the elaborate scheme that Canberra has had in place in Indonesia for 22 years. So essentially, Australia has set up an arrangement with Indonesia where they are creating a protracted situation for refugees that are in transit there. They've created a system where they've paid organizations like IOM and UNHCR to basically warehouse them. And for that, at that time when they first created the system in the year 2000, it never really something that could become big and grow until the situation where Australia basically decided to enact Operation Sovereign Borders. Now, the Operation Sovereign Borders, which is still in effect today, basically now created a situation where refugees can't go any further beyond Indonesia, onwards to Australia, and to a certain extent New Zealand. And that basically created a protracted situation where they're just basically stuck there. Australia pays the IOM to, to the majority of refugees that are stuck there to basically warehouse these people that used to be in detention centres, but now in, in the refugee hostel. But now they've also reduced the funding as of like 2018 and only basically reserve monthly stipend funding to those who came just before 2014. So now basically it's almost like an abandonment from Australia about the refugees that are stuck there. And there's not a lot of resettlement of refugees that are basically stuck in Indonesia towards any third country. So it's it's basically an abandonment at this point. Were all of these people who have ended up in, as you say, in this refugee warehousing, are they all people who were presumed to want to get to Australia? So initially, yes, because there's no other reason why they would have transited across through Indonesia other than to go to Australia onwards. But after the Operation Southern Borders policy was in full effect, they just want to be resettled. But the interesting thing is that the initial reason why they ended up there also is because they have a lot of relatives that are already in Australia and to an extent New Zealand uh, as well. And this is something that's actually, that's how much link that they have, especially refugees for, especially because a majority of these people wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford such um, journeys at that time because they obviously they have family members and friends in Australia. Do they all have refugee status? Majority of them are. There are, of course, that are coming recently. That's really quite recent, and those are the Rohingyans. So the refugees that came from that part of the world, rather than from Afghanistan, things like that, they are freshly processed. They don't actually have any intentions of coming to Australia or anywhere. Those are the ones that just want to be in a safer place, and Indonesia is the only option that they have at, at that time, because Malaysia and Thailand have started turning their boats away, and Indonesia is pretty much the only other place that accepted them, except now they're starting to also turn those boats back. So that's the only exception. And those are predominantly Rohingyans. And with Australia having reduced this funding that had been providing, Indonesia is picking up the tab, is it? No, not, not at all. Indonesia um, hasn't signed the, you know, the Refugee Convention in any way. 
They basically hands it off to all the international organizations. The only local entities that picked up the tabs are the local NGOs and basically anybody else who, who wants to help just out of um, their own willingness and the grassroots. The Indonesian government simply has no um, incentives. Um, the numbers are too tiny. There's just no, they just have so much bigger priorities. People just like us, what are you asking the Australian government to do? What do you think it should do? We are asking for the Australian government to change the policy and overturn the Operation Southern Borders policy, accept all refugees that are stuck in limbo in the region and have a way to create a safe passage for those who are still in transit. Um, So obviously, at the moment, there's just no way for these people to be resettled, and a lot of people are still stuck, essentially, right? We also want to dismantle the essentially the offshore processing center. That is something that is not acceptable. We should immediately release these people and give them full protection, full permanent protection visa. So that's basically what we want. We've established there's nearly 14,000 people there. So you would say the Australian government should give all of those people these visas into Australia? Well, we want to establish a safe passage so these people can be fairly processed. And I believe Australia should have the majority of that 14,000, considering that we are basically the power in the region. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Looking you for next time more.